Welcome in. This is a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown coming to you from the Blue Wire Studios at Wynn Las Vegas. Still crazy to say that. And today, it's all things Saudi Golf, Super League, Premier Golf, how we got here, where we're going, all that fun stuff. And joining me to break it all down, I've got him here. It's Andy Lack. Andy, we've got a lot to talk about, my friend. Thanks for doing this. And it's developing by the second, right? Seemingly. Like it's hard to keep up. I'm I'm almost worried that during our recording, uh, someone else is going to put out a new statement. Yeah, there was a statement that came out like an hour ago that we are going to eventually get to. But yeah, this might be dated uh, in five seconds. But I think we'll do a good job of the history because this is this is ever changing. Obviously, it's a, a huge story in our sport, right? Anytime that there's an opportunity or potential opportunity for a literal break-off league, Andy, I mean, in, in our lifetimes, that's not something we've seen before. Not even close. I'm trying to think of a comp to this. I think soccer has had some stuff similar to this, but not really the political aspect of it, too. Right. Um, I'm so curious. I'm, I'm so excited to do this podcast with you, Rick, because... I'm very curious, and, and I want to hear your take, too. Like, the average golf fan, do they care about this? Should they care about this? Uh, like, where do you think the average golf fan is at with this entire situation? Has this been underreported? I think it's been overreported in our circles, probably underreported in the more casual golf fan circles, because we've got a situation where I don't think most casual golf fans care, but they're definitely going to care or definitely would care if uh, 20 of the game's best pick, picked up and moved anywhere. Not not necessarily just to Saudi Arabia, but to literally any other league that, hey, where are the where's the broadcasting rights going to be for that? So in this moment, I don't think the casual golf fans care, but the implications that could come out of this are certainly going to be something that impacts everybody. I would agree. I think that's a fair assessment. Well, hopefully throughout the course of this discussion, we can help educate and get down the basics from the start because it is a little confusing, to be honest with you. Yeah, so um, a lot of news in the last couple of days around the future of the SGL, the Saudi Golf League, but it, it starts way before that, Andy. This goes back over a year ago, probably closer to 18 months, where we heard rumors about an upstart golf league somewhere. And it could have been the PGL, the Premier Golf League. It could have been the Saudi Golf League. Are they connected? Are they different? There was a lot of questions about that, but the idea being that more and more entities want to get into the game of golf, right? They're seeing this as a very deep sport, a sport where there is a lot of opportunity for growth and, of, of course, financial gain. And the PGA Tour is no longer, uh, you know, the, the only show in town, at least by the determination of these other entities. Exactly. So there's three key things to differentiate here. The PGL is... A, it's British guys. It's it's British bankers. It's a guy named Andy Gardner, and they were they've had this idea for a very long time to Correct. create a different league with uh, a smaller tour, guaranteed purses. There's supposed to be a team aspect of it. Like they've been talking about this idea for a very long time. 
the Saudi stuff has nothing to do with that, right? So right. essentially where the Saudis came in is the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which is essentially a wing of their government, gave a bunch of money to a company called Live Golf, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of before, but aren't quite sure what Live Golf actually is. Live Golf is ran by Greg Norman. It was initially a $300 million investment in the Asian tour to set up a series of events on the Asian tour, similar to what the European tour was with the Rolex series, basically right. create an ele- a series of elevated events. This is not this. This is a proposed super golf league, a Saudi golf league, whether you want the S in the SGL to sound for super or Saudi, no, who can say the name isn't really queer. Um, and this is very similar to the PGL in its structure. It's supposed to be a smaller league, smaller events, basically removing the idea of a cut. Um, they're adding a team element to it as well. It's supposed to have captains, player owners, relegations, all these different things that aren't really anything like what we see on a week-to-week basis at the PGA Tour. And the difference between this idea and the PGL's idea is that it is funded by the Saudi government. Like That is the key difference here. For sure. And the reason that this even has, well, there's two big reasons that this has legs at all, whether it's the PGL or the SGL, whether they have legs at all. One, the money. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the other one is, this is really appealing to the best players in the world who are in one of the maybe only sports where their earnings are not completely tied to their performance. So when Rory McIlroy shows up at a golf tournament, he has the, you know, not the same likelihood, but like the payouts are the same for him as they are for Scott Stallings and Dylan Wu and, you know, golfer A, B, and C. And the top guys are like, hey, you know, you use us for the marketing. You use us for all this uh, hospitality stuff and the corporate stuff and the pro-ams. And you use our likenesses, but we're still only being compensated in the same way that everybody else is based on our position on the leaderboard. So I think that's kind of part one. If you can offer the top players an opportunity to play for either more guaranteed money uh, for larger purses to not have a cut and to play fewer events, which is what they generally all do when they pick their schedule anyway, the actual concept behind it to the top players, Andy, is very appealing. Absolutely. And I think that is a very, very, very important point to outline at the top and explain why players would want to do this. If I'm a PGA Tour player, I completely want to hear these guys out because there are a lot of issues with the PGA Tour, uh, whether that be the product, whether that for the fans, whether that be the payout structure, whatever you may have. I mean, there's a lot of ideas about the FedEx Cup and the way that the FedEx Cup is structured. It's basically an idea that um, kind of incentivizes the best players in the world to play some tournaments that they, they don't really want to play, right? Like, why is the FedEx Cup point structure not based more so on strength of field? Why is it? Hmm. Why is the Byron Nelson Classic 500 FedEx Cup points and Riviera last week, which had a strength of fields close to a major championship. Why is that equal? I think a lot of the top players in the world saying, hey, this doesn't really make sense for us. We don't want to play uh, the Fortinet championship in September. 
right? But if we don't play the Fortinet Championship in September, then we're going to look at the FedEx Cup standings in August and realize that Kramer Hickok is ahead of us, right? So there's all these different reasons why um, PGA Tour players, especially the better ones, would want a smaller, more condensed league. I mean, there's a whole NFT side of it, too, and digital moments, which we can, I did a little research on. We can wade into that uh, whenever you want yeah, as well. That'll come up with the Phil Mickelson comments. But, you know, the it's a gift and a curse that the PGA Tour can roll out 45 events in a season, right? It's amazing that you get to travel from city to city, week by week, and you get to have something on the schedule and on television nearly every single week of the year. That's the gift. The curse is not everybody's playing every single week. And that is rare for our sport compared to other sports. And it's a situation where the top players who are financially secure and are good enough to only play 18 events are basically only playing 18 events. So that leaves you with what, you know, 27, 25 events that are like, oh man, is this is this all that great? Who's showing up here? You know, they've tried to incentivize it. You mentioned the FedEx Cup points. The, the fact that it's 500 FedEx Cup points for the, the Fortinet Championship and, you know, a, a larger, uh, you know, an invitational or a major might only get up to 550 or 600. Like, that's by design, right? It's to try to do something to entice Rory McIlroy to play the Honda Classic, to entice uh, Brooks Kepka to play at the Sanderson Farms. Whether they're able to accomplish that or not, it's a gift and a curse that they've got the schedule the way that, it, that it's currently set up. Yeah, and and to be honest with you, we've talked about this so many times before on other podcasts, Rick, is like, how can the PGA Tour get the most out of its events? How can we create events on the schedule that have some character, right? Like, what is so great about Phoenix? It has a personality, right? It has it has a character, whether that be the fan experience, the 16th hole. Um, it's a week that fans and players can say, oh, this is a little bit different. Right. And I think that is the problem with having all these events, right? Is that some of these events, like I keep picking on the Byron Nelson for some (laughs) reason, but they just, they don't have a personality and they get completely lost in the sauce. And, you know, even an event this week, like not to date us too much, but we're in the middle of the Honda Classic right now, right? So we're in this five week stretch where, We've got Riviera, we've got the Honda Classic, then we've got Arnold Palmer, then we've got Bay Hill, and it we get into this situation where no one really wants to play the Honda Classic. Now, the Honda Classic's a fun course, right? It's it's close to where a lot of these guys live, but maybe if you created like a, a bye week or something in between, you would see so many other great players want to play this event. The issue that we run into is it's also clogged up that a bunch of these events are starting to get squeezed, which in turn, you know, makes a bunch of boring weeks for the fans and the players don't love the fact that they feel like they have to play in all of these events. So they don't get passed up in the FedEx cup. What the, what the SGL and the PGL prior are basically saying is, Hey, we might have a solution to this. We might have you know, a smaller amount of events, a smaller amount of PGA tour players. And I do think that's compelling. Like, I do think that's interesting. I'm I'm curious to ask you as like a consumer, would you like the idea of a much smaller season? Um, I'm probably too much of a consumer where if there's something on and there's professionals in it, even if they're not professionals, like I'm probably going to watch it and I'm going to consume it in the same way. So I'm probably too much of a consumer. I see the 
benefit of chopping this thing down and maybe having 30 events that are all more kind of elevated status, or maybe it's 25, but um, I, I think the you know, the cat's out of the bag. The toothpaste is out of the tube. There's, there's just no way that's ever going to happen. So it's, it's hard for me um, to really wrap my brain around it. But when the PGL dropped this, Andy, I think, you know, like at least golf Twitter was very much like, yeah, we, we, we could do this. Just give us, you know, 60 of the best players, no cut, have them have some type of team format, and let's, let's have at it. I think it was generally very well received on the plan that the PGL released. And then... We got the SGL, which is, as you mentioned, something completely different, backed by literally the Saudi government. And then politics enter the game here. And this is really where um, I think most players or some of the players have at least spoken out about their unwillingness to go play for Team Saudi Arabia, so to speak, because this is clearly an effort of sports washing with an infinite amount of money to uh, basically make your moral atrocities uh, look better or to validate you in a world standing. That's literally the definition of sports washing. So we've got a situation, Andy, where um, one of these startup leagues uh, can pay absorbent amounts of money, literally more than Tiger Woods made in his on-course career, more money than these guys are ever going to see but there's a little bit of that moral caveat. And we've seen these guys doing the dance back and forth for the last couple of months of whether that's worth it or not to them. Exactly. Exactly. That is the key point. And not to dive too deep into the political stuff, but but just to give a background, I mean, the Saudi government has a very uh, spotty track record on human rights, right? They that's, have That's generous. Yes. Very generous. They have executed american journalists they execute people who are gay it's not it's not ideal right and they are the ones that are actually funding this league which i think is very difficult to like try and think of a united Correct. states comp for this it's it, it would be like if uh if our government if congress was in charge of the pga tour except congress had all of these black marks to go along with it. it. It is, it's really different from, I think, anything we've seen before. The fact that the government really is the one funding this. So right. I think that's where players have to say, okay, this is more than just a little bit of a wrinkle. That's that's clearly the line in the sand. So the, the number one comment that people will make about this is, Oh, the U.S. government does terrible things. All governments across the world do terrible things. You can believe that. That's fine. But you're not as smart as you think you are when you say that because the United States Treasury is not opening up the coffers and saying, okay, let's go buy some athletes and bring them over here and start a sports organization. That's not coming from taxpayer dollars, right? That's the huge difference here. That's what makes this... Uh, much different than what anybody else thinks. It's just another, you know, another country getting involved in sporting event. Although I don't know if you've heard this, but it was reported that Trump, who is currently the front runner for the Republican nomination in 2024, was in talks with the Saudis about his courses at Doral and yeah. Bedminster being safe. My, my comment might age tour. very, very poorly if that all comes <laughs> yeah. to fruition. But yeah. like in this moment, as we are recording this, that's the key differential here between what the Saudi government is trying to financially back and what a regular sports organization in another country might look like.
Yeah, and then that's where you get into this situation with the players where, and you've started to see the statements already, and 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 we'll we'll talk about those statements. We'll probably spend a fair amount of time on those statements. But now the players are in a interesting, precarious situation where not only do they have to comment on the idea of their allegiance to the PGA Tour, but they also are in a position where you know, players are players supposed to include their political stances in their, in their comments. Now, some people are, are, are getting some blowback for that and the way that players are responding. So I think the fascinating point about this is when you have a political angle involved like this, it just messes everything up and changes the perception of everything. I think we all agree, you and I at least, and many golf fans agree, that the idea of changing the PGA Tour in certain respects, good idea, For sure. right? It's outdated in a lot of ways, but where this gets very messy is the political side of it. And that needs to be where the conversation starts, in my opinion. Correct. I've been very critical of the PGA Tour often, early and often, and I will continue to be. But you're right. That's a clear distinction. But the PGA Tour themselves, I mean, they must have thought that any of these kind of offshoot organizations were at least some part of a threat, Andy, because I've got the bullet list of basically the the types of defenses that they've put up over the last 12 or 18 months. And it really all started kind of after golf returned in 2020 during the, uh, you know, in the midst of the pandemic where the PGA tour and the European tour created a a strategic alliance. That to me is to just bolster the idea that, Hey, if there is going to be a world tour, we're going to be involved in it. Let's be friends here with the European tour. We can offer some, um, we can offer some resources to them. We can have a couple of events on the schedule that are kind of co-sanctioned and we can all live in a nice little world. So that was kind of part one and then they just started throwing money at the pip program at injecting uh prize purses with with millions of more dollars right this is the the defense of saying okay we're going to give our top players whether they earned it or not on the course uh we're just going to give them more money and and hopefully that is enough to keep them aligned with the pga tour the fact that they responded so quickly with this, with the PIP, with the increase, and the PIP's going up, by the way, yes. right? It was $40 million the first year. It's going to $50 Which, million which by year. the way, Andy, is literally just a popularity contest. There is no on, like no on-course stuff whatsoever. It's like Twitter mentions and followers and how much you tweet about somebody. It, it is literally a popularity contest. Exactly. So part of me says... Okay, maybe if they were going, if they had, if they decided to do these things so quickly and so rapidly, maybe the guys like Phil Mickelson, who said this is unfair and has been unfair for a year, has a point. Maybe they are sitting on a little too much money. On the other side of that, it's like, I'm not really sure that we can say that. And and we'll we'll get into I think there's a bunch of interesting financial stuff going on with the PGA Tour and um how much money they actually have and and how that was affected by the pandemic and how um their charity work and stuff like that. I have notes on all of that stuff. We can do a deep dive on that too. But the main key point here is the word leverage gets brought up <laughs> a bunch, wreck, sure. right? And if the idea that um this breakaway golf league, the players were kind of dangling the fact that they would leave to make to make the PGA Tour make changes. That's happened, 
That's already started to happen, and it happened in a very quick period of time. Yeah, so here's the bullet points here. The PIP program, your popularity contest, year number two, it's going up to $50 million from $40 million. The PGA Tour, almost across the board, increasing prize purses. The FedEx Cup champion now getting $18 million if you win that, which raises the total purse of, of that series from $60 million to $75 million. The Comcast Business Tour Top 10, a literal made-up standing system for the regular season, is increasing from $10 million to $20 million as just another way to pay this money out. And if you make at least 15 starts... Uh, you get 50 grand in your pocket for every PGA Tour player that does that. And then, of course, we've got the rumors, Andy, where in the next couple of years, the PGA Tour has been kicking around the idea of almost getting rid of that fall portion of the schedule, the, the portion that we talked about earlier where it's, you know, eight, nine, ten events and all the FedEx Cup points are basically the same as the, the main portion of the season and turning those into team events and more like invitationals and guaranteed purses, but not necessarily aligning with FedEx Cup points. So th those are already the changes, and there hasn't even been another league that started yet. Exactly. And, and I think a lot of these changes are things that should make some of its top stars be more incentivized to stay. And obviously, we've seen a bunch of players come out with statements recently, even in the past week, um, pledging their loyalty, or in the case of John Rahm, if we're going old world here, their fealty. Yeah, the I had never Tour. heard that word before, and then I heard it like six times in the same week, and I was like, okay, cool, I'll work that, I'll work that into the vocab from now on. <laughs> yeah, John, John, John Rahm went old world on us. I always love when players that have English as their second language have a better vocabulary <laughs> I than I do and use words that I would never think to use. So that's always fun. But Rick, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of this stuff is good. I think a lot of it is a good thing, right? I, I do think that um, the fall series has its issues, right? I, I do think that there are certain ways where maybe we could condense things a little bit and inject more personality in some of these other events. Like I do think that some of this stuff is good. And I do think that um, for the top players in the world, I think we always talk about the word product, right? I, I, I think, I think the product could improve. The question is where does this leave the SGL? Right. Where does this leave the SGL? Because right. now the PGA Tour is starting to fight back and um, the SGL might have to be under a little bit more pressure itself. Seemingly in the last couple of weeks, the support for the SGL was at an all time high. It had reached a fever pitch, Andy. We had heard all of these outrageous offers or reported offers, you know, $100 million to Bryson DeChambeau to be the face of the Saudi league, which to put that into perspective is basically all the money Tiger Woods has ever made on the golf course in his career. I mean, it's, it's obviously life-changing money, but it's more than Bryson could ever earn on the golf course, just kind of in one lump sum to be the face of this new league. And there were reports that they had their 20 commitments. And once they had their 20 commitments, they were going to go on and make a statement at the Players' Championship, which is just pure top-level pettiness, <laughs> right? At the PGA Tour's flagship <laughs> tournament, they're going to make their they're going to make their announcement and they're going to release the schedule. And at that moment, before we get to the Phil stuff, this felt more real than ever, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like 
the momentum, especially let's rewind back. I guess this was, I, I think, 10 days ago or something now where Kramer Hickok did an interview and Kramer Hickok said, hey, this is picking up some serious steam. There are 17 um, players that have committed to this and a lot of them are big names, right? The incentive is there. They're offering a lot of money. They're offering huge signing bonuses bonuses and some of the big guys have already committed to it now hmm. all of this started to come unhinged the next domino that fell was phil's statement right and phil's statement kind of threw a wrench in any and everything so what i wonder and that's when you started to see players really start to uh, push back and say ah, i don't know i'm not committed to this whatsoever so the interesting thing to me is how many players did they have really before the fill statement? Did the fill statement affect who was in or who was out? Yeah. And where do they stand now? I, I think it almost certainly affected everything. I think Phil kind of tor torpedoed this. We'll get to his quote in a second, but there were, listen, the, the quotes that you heard ranged from, oh, well, I just want to be a part of growing the game, which is the low-key way to just, like, say I'm going to go take my money and I'm going to just, like, try to make the best out of it or whatever, to Jason Kokrak literally being like, hey, I want to retire at 44. I want to make as much money as possible in the shortest period of time, which is honestly, Andy, the take that I respect the most because at least he told the truth. At least he didn't say, I want to grow the game or, oh, they do great stuff over there. I think it was Harold. I don't want to speculate. I'm pretty sure it was Harold Varner III who said like, oh, every time I've been over there, they've treated me great. It's like, yeah, no kidding, Harold. Like you're going over there for like appearance fees and you're getting, you know, flown out there on private jets and put up in five-star resort. Of course it's been great for you. Like, what are you talking about? So the, the range of comments before the Phil quotes came out seemed to imply that a lot of these guys had made up the made the decision that they were willing to go. And I think it's also important to outline, Rick, how this makes sense for a certain group of players, right? There are a certain yeah. group of players where this actually makes a lot of sense for them. Do you want me to read the the my speculated list? Because a lot of them fall into that category, right? Please, Which I know yes. the category you're going to get to. So this was before the Mickelson stuff came out. The list that I was purely speculating on of, of the 20 commitments looked something like this. Bryson and Phil, okay, those were their two keynotes. Lee Westwood, Adam Scott, Sergio Garcia, uh, Jason Kokrak, Justin Rose, Patrick Reed. Then you get into Stenson, Casey Poulter, and then you round this whole thing out with Graham McDowell, Jason Duffner, Tommy Fleetwood, Harold Varner III, Bubba Watson, Matthew Wolf, Shane Lowry, Terrell Hatton, Rafa Cabrera-Bello. And the idea behind that list, Andy, was a combination of guys who played the Saudi international. So they went, they got their appearance fee. They went over there and played. So they were already at least willing enough. And then guys that I could not cross out based on their comments, right? Adam Scott's comments were very weak and basically like, this is pretty appealing. I might want to go check this out. Bubba Watson said, yeah, they're going to pay me a lot of money and I can do a lot of good with that money that they're going to pay me. Kind of a roundabout way to get back to charity. So these, this was the list that I put together of names that I thought were most realistic that I couldn't cross out for some reason or another. And I think the majority of the guys on that list, Rick, we're talking about a group of Lee Westwood, Adam Scott, Sergio Garcia, Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson, Paul Casey, Ian Poulter, Graham McDowell, 
Um, those are all players that are on, we'll say, the back end of their career, right? That's not to say that there isn't more that they could accomplish in their mid to late 40s, right? But I think it's probably a safe assumption to say that their days of being a top 10 player in the world um, is probably over. So you look at it from their standpoint at is, and, you know, how much more can they accomplish from a legacy standpoint playing on the PGA tour against Victor Hovland and Colin Morikawa every week, right? Like yeah. how much more can they accomplish on the European tour trying to compete with the Hogard brothers, right? At a certain point, it's like, okay, we probably have missed our window to win any more major championships. So why don't we just take all of the money that we can and essentially extend our career in this little, I heard Rory, the thing that made me laugh the most was Rory called it like, if this is a transition to the champions tour, (laughs) but it's a very, very lucrative transition to the champions tour. So that really makes sense. Why players like Lee Westwood and Henrik Stenson would want to do this. The, the domino that always hit me, Rick, that I thought was going to be fascinating and make or break this league is players that do have a lot of legacy left on the line. Players like Bryson, who has 10 to 15 good years left of potentially being a top five, top 10 player in the world. Even Dustin Johnson, yeah. who's in his 30s, you know, Dustin Johnson is like right now the 20th, based on his resume, the 25th, 30th greatest golfer of all time. Like what he does in the next five to 10 years can dramatically affect his legacy in the game. So that's what's interesting to me. I understand why Ian Poulter would want to do this. I understand why Lee Westwood would want to do this. But would they ever be able to get guys earlier in their career to go? Uh, That would be hard. So you're from a golf and a financial standpoint, for a lot of these guys, it's perfect sense. Tommy Fleetwood, who does not have a card, on the PGA Tour after this season, if you gave him, I don't know, 20 million bucks to go play, outside of any moral, political um, considerations, yeah, you should sprint and take that, Tommy, right? And I don't know if Tommy was actually considering it or not, but that's kind of the the golf situation for a lot of these guys. But um, Phil came in and torpedoed this whole thing for everybody, right? Phil was the... Phil was the the biggest cheerleader. Phil was the guy who we found out literally um, hired the lawyers to construct the operating agreement of the SGL. That doesn't seem all that great. And then we get these quotes. And these quotes, Andy, are, uh, they're not necessarily recent quotes. They're from a couple of months ago with uh, an interview with uh, Alan Shipnuck, who is writing a book on Phil Mickelson. And um, Phil what thought he was off the record or at least that's the indication clearly i don't i don't think he was but that's that's the guys that phil's gonna go with on this one right yeah apparently <laughs> it, it seems like <laughs> phil like this is and alan shipnip has come up this is obviously a he said versus she said situation well but i'm yeah. going to side with shipnuck in this scenario based on what he said and, and when we get to the Phil apology portion of the show, he did not deny that he said it. He just kind of said it was off the record. Not that I actually said these things. So uh, there was no denial in the actual content here. So here's the quote. Uh, Phil says, they're scary mother bleepers. Yeah, he says the real world word to get involved with. We know they killed uh, Jamal Khashoggi and they have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Pause right there, Andy. Great question, right? Great question, Phil. You're on the right track. You, you, you are so close to this. 
And then he follows it up by saying, quote, because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. Okay, so just to be clear, we're, putting, we're balancing the scale on these two things one sentence apart from Phil Mickelson. And then he would go on to say, uh, basically, he is doing this uh, just to provide himself leverage on the PGA Tour, and he doesn't even know if he wants the SGL to succeed, which, Andy... Um, that's problematic for the PGA Tour, and it's probably also problematic for the SGL, who the face or one of the faces of your hopeful upstart league uh, just said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, I think, you know, the number one thing is if you're in a leverageable situation, I think the last thing that you want to do is tell the party um, that you're trying to create leverage on them, that <laughs> that is your intentions, right? So. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's a lot to unpack here, Rick. But I, I think the key point here is if I'm the PGA Tour, you have to suspend him for that, right? Like, I, I even did a little bit of a deep dive I, on their conduct book. It's breaking, like, 18 different things at the same time. I was going to ask you, like, I am I think he is suspended, right? Because I, I have yeah. no reason to—I have no inside yeah. information on that. But there is the conduct, conduct detrimental to the organization clause and— uh, Phil, which the statement we're going to get to in which he already says he's going to be taking time away feels very ominous to when Dustin Johnson took a little bit of time away to find himself. Right. I, I mean, to me, um, he, I, I would, I would suspend him if I was the commissioner and it would not, I would not be surprised if we found out in a decade when a book comes out that he is actually suspended right now. That would be my guess as well. I'm I'm not reporting this. This is purely speculative. <laughs> right. I don't I don't have any sources inside Phil's camp. But if you read between the lines, that probably would make the most sense, right? Now, it's very interesting because another key point of this is the majors are different from the PGA Tour, yeah. right? So if Phil suspended from the PGA Tour, he could technically still play in the he Masters. Could, he could play at right? Augusta, right? He could show up at Augusta. He could play. Yeah, he could technically still defend his title at the PGA Championship because the PGA of America as well is also different from the PGA Tour. Same with the USGA, right? He just he can't play in the players or any of the PGA Tour events or even the Champions Tour, I believe, is owned by the PGA Tour as well Correct. or they're in direct partnership together. So I don't know where Phil goes from here. I, I really do not. I... I He's 51 years old, Rick. Uh, he won the PGA Championship in May, where I think if he doesn't win that tournament, I think that changes um, how people view him completely because you look at what he did in terms of competition on a golf course before the PGA Championship and after, it was absolutely nothing. Outside of one magical week in Kiowa Island, he has pretty much been irrelevant in terms of an elite player in terms of competing with the best players in the world for, you know, two, three years now, honestly. So I don't really know what Phil's angle is going forward, but if I had to take a guess, I think the PGA tour probably said, Hey man, let's, um, we're going to put you on the bench for a little bit. 
and uh, wait for some of this stuff to quiet down, and and maybe we'll pick things up in a year or two from now. The backlash was swift. Almost immediately, uh, the dominoes began to fall. Dustin Johnson not only released a tour committing himself to the PGA Tour, or excuse me, released a statement committing himself to the PGA Tour, but he did it through the PGA Tour. They released the statement for him, which is like, okay, well, that that's over. No chance there. Bryson DeChambeau gives us a, a statement that is weak in nature, but also still uh, says, I'm not going over to play anywhere else. I'll be on the PGA Tour. Xander Shoffley gave us a little bit of a statement more recently, but this this was it. And, and to me, without Phil, without DJ, without Bryson, you might technically have a new league. You might have an upstart organization, but you don't have anything worth watching, uh, which is kind of the point here, Andy. That's the issue, right? Is is there a next-in-line situation where are you going to offer Jason Kokrak the same amount of money that you are going to offer Bryson? And, and who, that's and where who I cares? say probably not. Right. And like, yeah, who, yeah who exactly. Cares? It's, exactly. So go ahead. No, nah, it's just, it's, it's tough. You can't, yeah. You're, if your face is Jason Kokrak, no offense to Jason Kokrak, love you, dude, but it's, that's not what they're going for. It's not what they're going for. And it obviously uh, creates a, a bunch of more situations. Phil was uh, a few days later able to release a very long statement in which he um, says he's taking time away. We learned that KPMG, his longtime sponsor, Andy, has dropped him. Callaway, where he has a lifetime uh, deal, a lifetime partnership. TBD, haven't heard much from them. But Phil, um, yeah, man, it's uh, he's he's going to end up being kind of the supervillain in this whole thing. Can we go back to, I want to, there's one thing, uh, there's one other thing that I want to talk about with Phil that I think is an important point here. And, and this ties into the NFT stuff I was talking sure. about a little bit. But I, I think the key thing about Phil's statements with a lot of the money, like it, it's not actually correct what he's talking about. So Phil <laughs> talks about digital assets, right? And he says, and I quote Rick, a bigger deal is that the players don't own highlights of their own shots. Each of these moments potentially could be turned into an NFT and sold to fans or connectors. Over the last year, over $600 million worth of NFTs have been sold with a 5% transaction fee split evenly. Oh, boy. Numerous NFTs of NBA players have sold for prices in the six figures. So, Rick, if you actually do the math here... He's talking about like $30 million and Phil is throwing out figures like $20 billion. It's just completely inaccurate. And that's why his credibility for me goes out the window. And I think what's important for people to realize too, is this is all about rights, right? Like Phil is basically saying the PGA tour is sitting on this giant stockpile of cash, which by the way, they aren't like they had to, they had a lot of cash and they had to use a lot of it to help the players during the pandemic. Right. But Phil is basically saying, Hey, they have all of this money and this is completely unfair. Like, no, Phil, that's actually not really how rights work. Like, Tom Brady doesn't own his okay. touchdown passes, right? Well, like, this is all... Go ahead. If, when someone pays $200,000 for a LeBron James top shot, does Lebr LeBron James does not get a cut of that outside of maybe part of the agreement that top shot made with the, with the players' union, right? Like, it's not... LeBron's not pocketing a percentage of someone buying his NFT in the way that Phil is somehow implying, right? Exactly. And 
this all has to do with rights. So you can't sell the rights of these moments to CBS, NBC, et cetera, and then turn around and tell the players, you can do whatever you want with this too. That would lose its value for the giant TV networks that are using these as well. So that's not how leagues works. And he's basically saying, hey, the PGA Tour is sitting on all this money. They're sitting on this $800 million cash stockpile. Well, no laying up, for example, reported that they reached out to tour contacts, and that's not even remotely true. Um, they don't even have half of that. And those reserves, like I said, were used specifically for when the tour had to shut down because of the pandemic and they needed an emergency fund to help the players. Right. So a lot of this is like, Phil, it, you're being like, it seems like you're throwing out numbers that are completely inaccurate, and this seems all based on greed. Now, the other aspect of it that is strange is, you know, why does Phil need the money? He's made over $95 million on the course and probably $50 million per year off the course in terms of sponsorships. Well, he sold his private jet a couple of years ago. Yeah. He's been giant on taxes. He's talked about how he's paying 62% in taxes in California and he's moving to Jupiter now. And then there's obviously the whole angle with his gambling debt as well. But it's like, hey, Phil, the PGA Tour never forced you to live in California. <laughs> yeah, there's there are layers that this is more of a personal issue for Phil Mickelson than it is an issue for the PGA Tour players as a whole. Two more things I want to get to before we, we get out of here. One, Phil will be the big loser in all of this. Andy, you can whatever percentage of of the viewing audience, um, you know, the the unlimited goodwill that Phil had, he has at least eroded that in some portion of the fandom. However, didn't he kind of get what he wanted? Right. Like the PGA Tour, we talked about all the defenses they put up. We talked about all the money going to top players. It's unfortunate for Phil that he is no longer a top player. Uh, he maybe won the pip or maybe finished second in the pip, depending on who you want to believe on that one. But like, he's going to be the villain, but I think he kind of got what he wanted, but he's not going to be the one to profit off of it. I would agree. He's kind of the fall guy. He's the fall guy. He's, he's the fall guy. I think a lot of these changes that the PGA tour has talked about are, Good things, I think, or at least the players would at least view a lot of these things as good and positive for them and positive for their bank accounts and positive maybe in some way, shape, or form for the fans as well and the overall product. Um, it, Phil is just in a position where, I mean, have we ever seen a starker contrast between a player with an approval rating through the roof six months ago uh, versus where Phil is at now? And that's like kind of the conversation that I kind of opens up at the beginning of this is like, do people just forget about this? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I really don't because the, the largest percentage of people that are Phil fans probably don't even know this is happening, right? Cause they're not on Twitter or they're not doing whatever. So he would probably he'll probably be fine in the court of public opinion. I wonder how he will be treated uh, by peers when he kind of gets back on the golf course. And I, I don't know. I, I really don't. It's a, it's a strange situation. Well, Rick, this story is transcending like golf Twitter a little bit. Like the Washington, like my mom and dad both have called okay. me about this. Well, because the Washington, yeah. 
Yeah, the Washington Post is doing big, like Maggie Haberman, who's like a one of the most famous New York Times reporters, is reporting stuff and breaking mm. news on this as well. So I do think because of the political angle, that makes this a really compelling story for the New York Times as well. So I do think that um, maybe the non-diehard golf fans, because of that political angle, is also pretty fascinated with this entire development. So that's that's why I say, like, I'm not sure with Phil going forward. Yeah. Now, one one last thing before we, we get you out of here, uh, a little bit of breaking news because this happened just before we started recording. Uh, Greg Norman releases his basically open letter to PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. Uh, Greg Norman is basically the commissioner of the SGL and it's uh it's it's pretty crazy. It's it's pretty crazy stuff in here. He goes on to argue that you can't tell players uh where, if they can play your tour or not or you can't ban them from your tour. These guys are independent contractors. I mean, there you can read this yourself, but there is um there's a lot of this that obviously as a non-lawyer I think is pretty nuts right he 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 takes the fact that these players are independent contractors in situations when it benefits him and he does not acknowledge that fact in situations where it does not behoove him which I find comical and then of course Andy he ends this here's the best part he ends it by saying commissioner this is just the beginning it certainly is not the end ominous words from Greg Norman about the future of the SGL Oh my gosh. There's a lot to unpack there. So I, I think that the idea that the SGL was just going to go out, go up in flames because of this, that was probably never going to happen. The question that we need to figure out, Rick, is what moves do they have? Like, what is their actual objective here? And, and I was thinking about this a lot. Like, are they thinking short term or long term, right? Sure. All of, yeah, all of their moves have suggested that they're thinking short-term. Like, if I was the Saudis and I cared about this being a long-term thing, I wouldn't be going for Lee Westwood. I'd be going all in on, like, Sahith Tagala and Joaquin Neiman and even, like, Cole Hammer. I'd be posted up at the Walker Cup and the University of Texas and Stanford and looking at those guys, right, if I really cared about this being a long-term thing. Like, what's the shelf life on Lee Westwood? Three years, right? So that's where it's like, what is their objective here? It's clearly a short-term thing to try to sports wash themselves back into a better position on the world stage because the long-term scenario, Andy, investing $300 million into a golf organization is an incredible amount of money. If you took that $300 million and said for the next 15 years, we're going to just completely redo this Asian tour and we're going to give it all the proper support that it needs and we are going to have guys like Hideki Matsuyama, uh, like grow up in this and aspire to be a champion of the Asian tour as he does aspire to be a master's champion. That's the long-term plan. $300 million into a startup golf organization is an outrageous amount of money that they could do so much good with. I don't think that's the idea. I don't think that's the plan. Right. They're not, they're not doing any of that. They're basically saying like, let's disrupt the marketplace and see where we're at six months from now, right? There's yes. no, it doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or reason to that. And I think that's probably the case when you're sitting on that much money is that maybe you don't have to think as long-term as maybe the PGA Tour does. But I, listen, I, I'm fascinated to see where this goes over the next couple of months. I'm fascinated to see at the players 
yeah. if anything gets announced, right? Because that's probably the next domino that falls is they told us they were going to announce some of these guys at the players. And by the way, Rick, like this is happening really quickly and they're running out of time. Their initial plan was to start this this year. They right. were supposed to have six events this year with four of them being in the United States, right? So if this is actually going to happen, I think we're going to see something come at the players. Yeah, well, what we'll do is in this moment, we'll, we'll put a pin in it because as I've learned in the last 10 days, this is probably all going to change very rapidly in the next 10 days and we might have to do a part two of this. But for now, we'll put a pin in it. Andy, uh, an excellent resource as usual. I really appreciate you coming on and talking through this with me. Rick, anytime. Um, I love deep diving this stuff and uh, we will be talking again soon, I'm sure, about this and about all other things. Absolutely. You can find Andy on Twitter at ADP Lack Sports. You can find me at Rick Run Good. This has been a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown and we'll catch you next time.